Amen. Thank you, choir, musicians. As you make your way down, we are so grateful for your leadership and leading us in worship and preparing our hearts for God's Word. And my goodness, it's good to see you this morning. If you get your Bible out, open to John chapter 1. We're going to get back into our study of the Gospel of John. And I was telling the staff this week that I feel a little uh, discombobulated, if you will. In other words, all week long I've been thinking about, my goodness, how in the world can we follow last Sunday morning service? Woo, I'm telling you. Uh, but luckily, that's not up to me, and uh, God's Word is always sufficient and abundant. But what a great day we had last Sunday, and... Just uh, not a day has gone by since that I haven't thought about it and that one of those 14 lives hasn't ministered in my own heart. I'm just grateful for that. So let's pray and ask God's help and then we'll study in John chapter 1. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we receive it as your perfect and errant gift to us. Lord, we want to confess before you that we're humbled by it, Lord. We exalt your word as our greatest earthly possession. We thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and giving yourself to us through the Scripture. And God, today, as we look in your perfect word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, Lord. That you would supernaturally prepare our hearts to receive. That we might be able to see the things that you desire for us to see in your Scripture. And that you'd be glorified by the time we spend together. And that what would be done and accomplished by you would be what only you can do. And we're going to give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've called the, the first six chapters of the Gospel of John will, are going to be encounter because they're this sequence of encounters that the Lord Jesus has with these various people. And we're working our way through chapter 1 as we're just encountering Jesus. And so uh, I've called this series The Life That Changes Life because uh, over and over and over in the Gospel of John, especially in this first chapter, the word life continually comes up. And we'll see this morning that God, through the revelation of Jesus, especially through the Gospel of John, has a very specific agenda, uh, a framework in which God wants us to see Jesus. So we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 12. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. The scripture says, But as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for truth, grace for grace, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is of the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. Amen. Now what I want us to do this morning is 
looking at this section of Scripture, I want you to focus your attention back at verse 16. I want you to notice that when we left off last week at verse 12, when you begin to read forward and you get to verse 16, you see that the Scripture says that of His fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. Sometimes you'll read in a translation, it may say grace upon grace. Grace for grace. Now, what, what does this mean? What is the Scripture trying to teach us? Grace for grace. Really, the, if you uh, wanna, were to translate this literally in the Greek, it would say grace instead of grace. Grace instead of grace. Now, probably the reason why it wasn't translated that way is because it would confuse people. And we would think, now, wait a minute, what's going on? You notice that the, the very next passage, verse 17, says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So oftentimes what we think is, is that grace actually replaces the law. And so our, our, our concept of the coming of Jesus and the new covenant and the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament, we think of it in terms as, well, grace has now come and it's replaced the law. But the reason that that's not accurate is because of verse 16. It doesn't say that grace instead of the law. It says grace instead of grace or grace for grace. And so what I want you to see, if you have your listening guide, first of all, is that grace replaces grace, not law. That's capital G-R-A-C-E replaces little grace. Now, I'll explain this as we go, but just think of it in terms of, you know, you know, uh, well, probably the younger people in the crowd wouldn't relate to this, but well, maybe with your parents. But you remember when your parents, you know, uh, finally got rid of the flip phone and, and upgraded to a smartphone and then discovered the whole world of texting, you know, eons after everybody else was already texting. And so, you know, it's always hilarious when somebody first starts texting because you can sort of tell by the way they're you know, texting everything to you, and people make fun of me because I text grammatically correct. I just can't help it. I'm obsessive compulsive about things like that. But you know, the, the person who's texting you in all caps, and everyone who reads their text is thinking, why are you screaming at me? And they have no idea that they're shouting. But what you find out eventually is somebody says, listen, you got to turn that cap lock off. You're driving us all crazy screaming at us. So capital grace, big grace. I mean, they're both grace. So we got to figure out a way to say this this morning. So we're going to say it's big G grace and little g grace. So big grace replaced little grace, not the law. Now, this is a very, very important distinction. So let's talk about this for a minute. So first of all, number one, let's talk about little g grace. Let's talk about the grace that was replaced by the big g grace. Let me show you how the scripture will enlighten our minds to see how grace is for grace. Now in the Old Testament, as Many of you in this room know because you're, you've been, you're involved in D groups and so you're reading your Bible every day and all last month you read through all of these passages and so as you were reading through them, hopefully in your D group conversation, some of the things we'll talk about this morning have already come to you, the illumination of your mind. But first of all, 
In the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament, what you find is that access to God was for a select few. Remember, Moses would go up on the mountain and he would meet with God and everyone else would stay down. And he might take Aaron with him or he might take a few of uh, the, those priests who were with him, but it was for a select few. And not everybody could go up on the mountain and meet with God. The Scripture says as Moses was going up to receive the Ten Commandments, remember you read in Exodus 19, But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Remember, basically there was caution tape all the way around the base of the mountain for the people so that they knew don't even touch the mountain. Don't go near the mountain because if you do, you'll die. And so everyone can't touch the mountain, but Moses can go up the mountain. And so there was a clear delineation between Moses and other people. It was for a select few. And then also we saw in that reading when we got to chapter 20 that the presence of God was terrifying. And I, I mean, I say that with, uh, with all, uh, as, as lightly as I possibly can. Because the thing is, is I don't have a word in my vernacular other than terrifying to describe how the presence of God was in the Old Testament. Remember, as Moses comes down off the mountain in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 18, the Scripture says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Now listen to what they say. They said to Moses, You speak with us, and we'll hear, but do not let God speak with us, lest we die. Moses comes down, you know, Moses comes down with his, you know, radioactive face. He comes down and they're all going, okay, here's the deal. We're glad you're here and, and we'll, we'll talk to you, but we're not talking to God. So whatever, whatever needs to be said to us, we'll listen to you. But if we, if we talk to God, we're going to die. And so his presence was terrifying. So you see that there's this Great divide between the select few and between this God of the Old Testament. Now, in between those two sequences, in between Moses going up the mountain and in between Moses coming down the mountain, Moses is up there and God gives him the law. And when God gives Moses the law, what does God say? He says in Exodus 20, God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Before he ever gets to, you shall not have any other gods before me. Before he ever gets to all the other commandments that are in the law, he begins by saying, this is who I am, and this is what I've already done. So God did not give the people the Ten Commandments until after he had already delivered them from their horrific bondage and slavery in Egypt. So here you have this people. You have to just try to, you know, put yourself in in the text and imagine you have a people who are the descendants of Abraham who essentially live a nomadic life. They're just going from place to place to place. And God is, is with them, but 
oftentimes it doesn't feel that way. They end up in Egypt because they're starving and they're looking for food. You know, you know the story of Joseph. They end up there. And what ultimately happens is they become in, in bondage and slaves to the Egyptians. And so for 400 years, every single day of their life, for generation after generation after generation... Basically, slavery is all they know, is all they can hope for. They don't have any reason to think that things are going to change. They don't know any possible way that, I mean, they're not really a people. They don't have an army. They don't have any way to defend themselves or protect themselves. They're basically at the mercy of the Egyptians, and that's just the way it's going to be. And so they're just existing in that place. God then encounters them and intersects them through uh, uh, an encounter with Moses. And he calls Moses to go before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And suddenly this nomadic nobody people who has no hope of anything ever changing suddenly has been led by the most miraculous sequence of events out of slavery, but not only that, their enemies have been devoured up in the sea. I mean, they have seen things and experienced things that we could only imagine. And so after all of that, after God's delivery, after, God's, uh, prove, after God proves His magnificent power and authority and ability, after all of that, then God gives them the law, but only then. So what God is saying in the law is this. He's saying, listen, children, remember how I demonstrated my love for you and I showed you my incomparable power. You've seen that. So trust in me and look to no one else for help. Essentially what God's saying as He brings the law to the children of Israel He's saying the Exodus is a sign. Excuse me, it's a sign. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture that I will take care of you, that you can trust me, that it's going to be okay. So basically, the Exodus was a, the foundation for faith in the Old Testament, right? Because the, the, what would be the motivation to, in other words, Moses comes down with the, uh, with the law. Why not just say, well, I don't care what God says. Why am I going to do that? Why do I even care about any of that? Because of what they've seen. Because of what they've experienced. Because of what they've went through. Because of the exodus. It's the foundation for their faith. So this faith becomes the basis of the law. So if you think about it, the law of Moses, it simply spells out the way Israelites would live if they genuinely trusted God with their future, if they felt secure in God, what the Ten Commandments gives you is it gives you what, what their lives would look like in living out trust in the God of the Bible. You see, if you trust your life to God, if your security is in God, then you don't steal. If you trust your life to God, you don't abuse others by killing or by lying to them. You don't uh, covet after someone else's spouse. If you really believe that the God of the Exodus is at work and He will give you the future that is best for you, that He will protect you, that He will care for you, that He will save you, that He will never leave you, forsake you, if you really believe that, then you wouldn't do those things that are spelled out in the law. You see, 
the Ten Commandments, what they are is you have warnings of, of things that are characteristic of a life of unbelief. That's what the Ten Commandments essentially are. And so, the way we know this is because over and over in the New Testament, we read things like in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, where when it comes to Abraham, the Scripture says he believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. Now, how was it, how was it accounted unto Abraham as righteousness if grace replaced the law, if we were under the law, if, it was, if, if the Exodus and the Ten Commandments was, was a works-based system? Now just think about this for a second. If the Old Covenant is a works-based system, how is Abraham righteous? What do you know about Abraham? He was a perfect guy, wasn't he? Negative. Uh, he was, he was a, a pretty much a disaster in a lot of areas, wasn't he? Sure. I mean, multiple times when you're reading through uh, the story of Abraham, you come to places and you scratch your head and think, well, what's he thinking there? Why is he, why is he lying about who his wife is? Why, why is he doing the things that he's doing? Look, he wasn't perfect, and yet it was counted unto him as righteousness. And so clearly, uh, the law was different than what we're under now, but there had to be grace involved in it, or Abraham wouldn't have been righteous, and nobody in the Old Testament would have been saved. There's never been any other way of salvation than by grace through faith. You see, that's not new when you get to the, Old Te- the New Testament. That's not new. It's just new in the way that it comes. So, the law, your next blank, the law is a description of, of the obedience of faith. It's not a job description for how to earn God's blessing. You see, it's wrong to think of the Old Testament law as a list of duties that in doing so you will earn the favor of God because it would go counter to what we know happened in the Old Testament. But oftentimes we relate to it or we think of it that way. You see, the law basically shows us the results of faith. It doesn't teach us the pathway to achieve faith. It reveals to us certainly our sinfulness and our shortcomings and our inability to do so. But still, there has to be grace or else nobody would have been saved. Because who could live up to that standard? So salvation never came by works. Never. There's nowhere in the Scripture that salvation came by works. Now, this is so amazing and so important to us because this amazing blessing that comes to the children of God in the Old Testament through grace. In other words, here they are slaving away in Egypt. Now, what have they done? What what have they done to earn God's favor? What have they done to merit being uh, uh, led out of uh, slavery and bondage and captivity? In other words... For what reason, apart from the sheer grace of God, does God show up to this little group of nomadic nobodies and then lead them through this miraculous chain of events to the place where they even receive the law? It can't possibly be by works because they haven't done anything. And yet God does it. Amen? He does it. So we see the grace of God in the Old Covenant. 
We see the fact that he, he, he intersects and encounters a people and that is, he's graceful to them, he's good to them. But it's very different than when we get to the New Testament. For example, when we get to the New Testament and the New Covenant and the New Grace in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Man, that's good. Now, so let's talk about big G grace. So what I wanted you to see is I want you to see the grace in the Old Testament that was replaced by this new covenant grace, this big G grace. Okay, so number two, capital G-R-A-C-E, grace. Now, as we balance these two against each other, let's remember, in little g grace... We saw that access for God was for a select few, that only Moses and those whom were close to him and who were consecrated by the Lord were able to go up and uh, see God or, or hear from God or get close to God. But now we see that access to God is for everyone. Access to God is for everyone. In this new grace relationship, access is granted to everyone. So John comes along in verse 14 and says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now, think for a second about the difference between what we read in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 and about the terrifying presence of God, and then imagine for a second how you would think if you were an Old Testament saint and you heard the words that God showed up in the flesh and tabernacled, He pitched His tent among us. How crazy that would be. How amazing it would be that he comes not, not, not through a building, not through uh, certain select people, but he comes personally as a person to us. Now, what was the very first conversation that was had Immediately after Moses received the Ten Commandments. Do you remember? Every single place in Scripture where the Ten Commandments story is told, you see the exact same conversation follow. Moses essentially comes down off the mountain with the, the, the law. He tells the people what the law is and what the law says. And then immediately they go into this conversation. Exodus 20 verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me, the Lord says, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. Now, why do you think the very first conversation had after the law is received is a conversation about the sacrificial system? In other words... Do you think that God was under any uh, delusion about our capacity and ability to be able to uh, hold up the law, achieve the law, do the law? In other words, 
You don't, you don't, we, don't do, we don't do this with our own children. We don't do this with each other. We don't tell our children, okay, you need to go upstairs and clean your room. And what we say, now, if you don't clean your room, it's going to get a lot worse. That's what we say. God comes to the children of Israel and He says, now, here's some things you need to be doing. These will be the attributes of your life if you trust in me. But if you don't do them, I'm going to give you a, a system by which you can make yourself right again with me. Grace. I mean, listen, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't even wait to, to go into this sacrificial conversation on until they've blown it. And made, I mean, he goes right into it. Like, you're going to need this, so we need to have this conversation now. So he immediately goes into this conversation about sacrifices and he tells them your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and you need to bring your your animals and sacrifice them that they're your own and he says but I'll meet with you and bless you now what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene and what does John tell us happen when Jesus uh, is walking up and John the Baptist sees him in verse 29 of chapter 1 he says behold the Lamb of God who, what does He do? Takes away the sin of the world. In other words, instead of having a conversation about the sacrificial system to show you that God is graceful, we have a conversation about the sacrifice Himself embodied to show you this big G grace of God. Behold, here comes the Lamb, the one and only Lamb, that once He's sacrificed, it's over. You don't need any more. You don't need any more animals. You don't. There is no blood that can that can uh, uh, that can rival his blood. There's no need for any of that because he will solve the problem once and for all. So here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's pointing forward. Now remember, when John says that, nobody understands Big G Grace yet. I mean, nobody's figured all this out, but. John is prophetically pointing forward to the very person who is walking up, the, the God-man, the Lord Jesus, who will sacrifice himself as a permanent atonement for our sin. So, access before was for a select few. Now it's been granted to everyone. The presence of God before with little g grace, I mean, it was graceful. Listen, we... Understand something. When they tell Moses, hey, you will talk to God we're not talking to because we'll die. I mean, they weren't being irreverent. They were just responding to the reality of what they'd seen. But, but understand something. God's speaking to them. You see, sometimes because of who we are and because of what we've seen and what we know as new covenant believers, we just take liberties and make assumptions that maybe we shouldn't make. Just because you and I understand things, we have to remember something. That these people are standing at the base of the mountain. And Moses is going, I mean, the whole time that, that, that the plagues are besetting Pharaoh, the whole time they're walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, they're thinking to themselves, this is unreal. Why is this happening to us? Why would God care about us? We don't deserve this. What makes us so special? They're trying to get their head around what's happening. So when they're standing at the base of the mountain and Moses comes down and they go, look, man, 
I mean, we don't exactly know what's going on. You will talk to God. We don't want to talk to him. We're afraid of him. We're we're afraid we're going to die. They're not being ungrateful. They're grateful that God's speaking to them at all. They're recognizing the fact that can you believe that the God of the universe is speaking to us? You see, sometimes we, 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 don't, we, we just look at this and think, I mean, the presence of God was terrifying. But it was grace in the fact that there was presence at all. Let, let me ask you a question. Have you ever stopped to consider, what about all the other peoples on the earth? What about all of them? What is going on with all the other peoples on the earth while we're reading this account in Exodus chapter 20? Nothing. That's what's going on. Zero. And do you know why it's uh, spectacular that they're experiencing this? Because it's the grace of God. They didn't deserve it. They didn't do anything to earn it. It's the grace of God. But it was just a different kind of grace. So the presence of God was terrifying. But now with big G grace, the presence of God is personal. It's personal. Look, John says in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. We, we talked about this last week. You just have to breathe that in a minute. You have to stop and understand for a second and realize and imagine the gravity of the difference between these two graces. On one hand, you're, you're just, you can't believe that God would speak to you, but you're terrified of Him, and you certainly don't want to talk to Him because you think you're going to die because you can't even touch the mountain on which He's on. You're looking up there and lightning and thunder and the ground is quaking and... And then this big G grace comes on the scene. And the Bible says, to you who receive him, God gives the right. Now now let's think a minute. The right to be children of God. You see, you can't just become a child of God. You have to have the right to become a child of God. You don't have the power, the authority, the wherewithal within you to make yourself a child of God. You can't just declare that to be so. That would be like me just declaring I'm Superman. That wouldn't give me any powers whatsoever. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to be a child of God. because I... No, it doesn't work like that. The right has to be granted to you. It has to be given to you. And so now the personal presence of God comes along and says, I'm granting to all who would receive me the right to be called children of God. Look at what the Scripture says in verse 18. Now no one has seen God at any time. That's right. They tried to see God. Moses tried to see God multiple times. When you were reading through all those uh, Exodus accounts and the Deuteronomy passages, did you remember reading and, and making note to yourself that even when, even when God walked up, the Bible says He walked up, He stood right before Him, and what did they see? His feet. That's all they could see was feet. Because they couldn't look up. They could see this, the feet of God. They, they can't look up. I mean, now it says, but now the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. In other words, 
He has made Him known. Man, this big G grace comes on the scene and it revolutionizes the grace that the world knew prior to this. And so with this grace, here's why I'm saying all these things, why it's so important for you to understand this. Because the point of all this is that when you're reading and studying John chapter 1, you have to contend with this word life. You have, to, you, have to, you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. Every person reading this passage is alive. You can't read something if air is not going in and out of your lungs, if your heart's not beating, if blood's not circulating. So with this new big G grace comes life. But you see, as different as little g grace and big g grace are, little l life and big l life are equally as different. And so what John wants us to know is that there's this new grace that brings life. So when the scripture said all the way back in verse 4, in him was life. What in the world? What in the world is God wanting us to take away from this? Now, I counted 36 times in John's gospel that this word life comes up. And, and most of these are very familiar and famous passages. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. More indication that there's some difference between just being alive physically and then being alive as... Uh, the scripture's trying to teach us. But what does this mean that he came and brought us life? Well, there's, there's two words that the Greek language has that are translated life. The first one is bios. And it's, a, it's, the Engli- it's where we get the English word biology. So think of it as, as bios, but that's not really how it's pronounced. But it refers to the duration of life from start to finish. So biology is the study of life, meaning it's the study of life in the context in which life exists from beginning to end, the time between birth and death, whatever that is. It refers to uh, the necessities of that life, the life between birth and death. So that verse, that word is translated all over the Bible as life. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the scripture says, uh, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of bios, life, the pride of life, the pride that exists in life between birth and death. But what's interesting is that when John says, in him was life. He doesn't use that word. He uses a completely different word. He uses the word zoe. And the word zoe is where we get the, the word zoology or zoo today. That's where we get that word. It's from zoe. And what zoe is, is it's the essence of life. It means the very essence of what life is. It's not limited by time or by space. It's not hindered by death. It's the essence of what life is. It refers to life that God grants. And so when John comes along and says, in him is life, 
He's not talking about something between birth and death. He's talking about the essence of what life was meant to be. And so if that's the case, which it is, then here's what I've prayed all week for you. I want you, all of you, to experience that life. I mean, what would be better than you experiencing the essence of life the way God intended for it to be? And here's here's the sad part about this, is that there are so many people, there are so many people, obviously outside, but even inside, the family of God, who are not experiencing Zoe life. They're not experiencing it. And there's a lot of reasons for this. There's a lot of uh, problems that we could point out about this. But I would say this morning that, that where we should focus our attention would be we need to think about with regards to the, the way to experience life as it was intended to be lived is through your affections. Through your affections. The, the, the things that captivate your heart. You see, the law is based on faith in God's promises. That it's, it's not on legalistic strivings. It's on having faith that God will keep the promises and do the things that He said He would do. The mistake that Israel makes throughout your journey through the Old Testament is not that they're pursuing the law. Do you get this? Are you seeing this when you're reading in the Old Testament? Are you seeing that their mistake is not that they're pursuing the law? That's not what they're doing wrong. It's pursuing the law by works that derails them every time. Every time in the Old Testament the children of Israel go off the rails, what is always at the forefront when every time you read it, what is always at the forefront of that text their affections. You see, they go astray. And why do they go astray? And then the Bible begins to tell us about, well, because they're mad at Moses, because the, they don't have pomegranates anymore, or they're sick of eating manna, or because, you know, they want better water, or they're tired, or they want to rest, or they want... It's their affections. It's all these things that they want. It's all these things that they're dreaming about, that they're hoping in, that they're, they, they're desiring... That's what leads them astray. That's what leads so many people today astray. The same exact thing. You see, we often think that the problem, this is, I'm telling you, there's so many people that I talk to that think that they're experiencing Zoe life. And they're not. And they're saying, you know, the people out there, meaning that I'm in the church and the people outside the church, they're not experiencing the essence of what life is because they're consumed with pursuing joy and pleasure. Is that true? Is the problem that people are running around pursuing joy and pleasure? No. Why are they pursuing joy and pleasure? Because that's how God made us. The problem is not that we're pursuing joy and pleasure. The problem is we're too easily satisfied. The problem is that we're pursuing the wrong joy. We're, 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 we're trying to satisfy ourselves with counterfeit pleasures and joys. 
And I'm telling you that that may seem like just a little phonetical shift, but it is a catastrophic shift in your mentality, in your experience, in your relationship with God. Now, it's been over 10 years ago. I was reading a book, I mean, over a decade ago. And in this book, the author told this story out of Greek mythology. And when I read this story, I've shared this in multiple times in multiple places but when I read this story from Greek mythology it immediately just impressed upon my heart that is the best way of describing what I'm trying to talk to you this morning about with regards to life so I'm going to just pause for a minute and tell you the stories of Ulysses Ulysses was this this great warrior he was a he was a uh, a, a man of war. And for years, the Greeks had been trying to penetrate into the city of Troy. And so you may remember this story from Greek mythology or from some movie you saw somewhere. And so Troy is this big, impenetrable city. And so Ulysses is the one that comes up with this brilliant idea of how we're finally going to get into Troy because they've had the city surrounded and nothing's happened. There's no way to get in. They can't get through the gates. They can't get over the walls. And so he, he's the one that says, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build this big wooden horse and we're going to wheel it up there to the city as like it's a gift. And then everybody's going to get on the ships and we're all going to sail away and just go around the corner and wait. And so Troy opens up the gates, goes out, gets this big horse wheels it into their city, locks the gates behind them. The men, Ulysses being one of them, and 29 other men are inside this horse waiting. They wait until nightfall, and everybody goes to sleep, and then they open the hatch, climb out, open the doors, let the army in, and overthrow the city of Troy, right? Right. So now that we're all on the same page with that, then what happens to Ulysses after Troy is defeated, once it falls? Well, Ulysses has this long-standing, you know, love affair with his, the love of his life, his wife, Penelope. And it's a big deal in Greek mythology. And so he longs to get home to be with Penelope. But in order to get home, they have to sail past the island of the Sirens. And nobody wants to sail past the island of the Sirens. The Sirens were these bird-like creatures. They had wings and they were these demonic cannibals, basically. And what they would do is they lived on this island that was uh, covered with the bones of their previous prey. Because every time a ship came by the strait, by the island of the sirens, they would play this beautiful music. They would play the harp and they would play the lyre and they would sing songs and they would captivate the mind of the sailors and they would draw the sailors in and the sailors would get all mixed up about these beautiful sirens and then they would steer the ship towards the island of the sirens where underneath the water lie these jagged rocks. The ship would hit the rocks, it would sink and the men would drown and then the sirens would eat their carcasses. Special ladies, aren't they? So Ulysses has already been warned about the danger of passing by the sirens. So what does he do? Believe me, this has such a powerful point. 
He comes up with a plan. I mean, he's a smart guy. He came up with the Trojan horse. He comes up with a plan. So he, he gets all of his men on the ship and he packs their ears with wax so they can't hear. But he's, he wants to hear the sirens. He doesn't want to plug his ears. So he says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to tie me to this mast, the mast of this ship. And as we pass, I want you to just keep rowing. Don't anybody stop rowing. No matter how much I scream, no matter how much I beg, do not untie me for any reason. And so they all agree. They pack their ears with wax and away they go. And as they're passing by, the sirens, the sirens, of course, come out. And they start, you know, making this beautiful music, trying to lure them in. And Ulysses starts going crazy. And he starts screaming at the men, you know, untie me, let me go. And he wants to jump over and swim to the island of the sirens. And, but the men can't hear him because they're the la, 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 la. And they're just rowing the boat, right? And so they pass by the island. And they're successful and they're safe. And the, the sirens are, you know, completely devastated because they can't believe that their powers didn't work. And Ulysses passes safely and eventually after a long sordid journey, makes it back to his homeland. But then there was another story in Greek mythology about a man who had to navigate his ship in front of the island of the Sirens. And he thought to himself, there's got to be a better way. And his name was Jason. And what Jason did was Jason recruited Orpheus. Orpheus is the most talented musician in all the land. In, in Greek mythology, he was trained by Apollo. The, in Greek mythology, it says that uh, his music, his singing and his music was so beautiful that trees would uproot themselves and follow behind him. It's Greek mythology. So he gets Orpheus. Jason puts Orpheus on his ship. And as they're sailing and they approach the island of the sirens, he looks at Orpheus and he says, begin to play. And Orpheus begins to play and sing this unbelievably beautiful melody. Such that the men are so captivated by the, the sound of Orpheus's voice and the playing that the sirens come out and they start doing all their shenanigans trying to get everybody's attention and the men don't pay any attention to them and they're just rowing along, listening to then they're going, that Orpheus is unreal. Now, which one of those two ways do you live the Christian life? Do you wake up every day and tie yourself to a mast and try to get through all the temptations and the sin and the darkness of this world and just go, I'm going to grit my teeth and bear it. I'm going I'm to somehow get through it. Or... Do you just bask in the unmitigated glory and splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ who is so spectacular that all of the, all of the temptations and all of the, the, the counterfeit satisfactions of the world just pale in comparison? You see? And in that is the difference between little L life and big L life. You see... God wants us to know through the Gospel of John that 
a new grace has come. And everything that you used to know about God has now changed. And it's so spectacular and so unbelievable that if you allow this Jesus to captivate your heart, you'll be so enthralled by Him that nothing can compete with Him. Nothing. You see, the the vice grip, the vice grip that sin and its uh, supposed pleasure has on so many people's hearts that it's all you can do to keep yourself from, from falling into, partaking of. You, you always feel something drawing you to, to do something that you know you ought not be doing. And listen, you can live your life chaining yourself to the, the mass of your ship, if you will, trying to just uh, get through every day without uh, falling off the wagon or, being, or succumbing to some temptation. Or you can allow that grip of sin to be broken by trusting in and acting upon the promises of God. By letting God be the glorious God in your life that He intends to be, desires to be, and should be. You see, the, the deception here is that both men passed by. That's what's deceiving. One was striving in his own strength and ingenuity not to give in. And the other was basking in something far superior. And I don't know about you, but I've met a whole lot of people like Ulysses. And I never walk away thinking, wow, that's the kind of life I want to live. No. But when I'm around some of you and I'm able to just see the way in which you just enjoy and love and and cherish the presence of God in your life and the goodness of Him and your trust is in Him because you know He's faithful, you've seen Him to be faithful and yes, yes, there's darkness out there and yes, there's terrible things out there and certainly we want to be cautious and, and careful. But... Those things don't have power. They don't have power. Have you ever wondered sometimes when you hear somebody say that maybe, maybe in a support group of some kind or something, maybe in a Sunday school class, and you know somebody maybe shares about their ongoing struggle with alcohol addiction or drug addiction or some sort of just long-standing struggle in their life, and then someone else in the room says, you know, that they at one time struggled with the same thing or something similar. And then somebody will say something like, I've heard many of you say it. And then God just delivered me from it. Now what exactly happened? Did God just take it away? Now, now let's think a minute. Did God just take alcohol away from the alcoholic? No. All the bars are still there. On all the roads they used to drive down, all the stores still sell it. 
All their friends are still doing it. And all the, all the temptations that have always been there, that they've always succumbed to, are still there. God didn't deliver you by moving you to the moon. He delivered you by revealing to you how amazing and awesome He is. That's how He delivers us. And when our realization expands out from devoting our lives and focusing our attention on not sinning, Listen, you can live that way all you want to, but I have zero interest in it. It's not biblical. The Bible doesn't call us to live that way. The Bible doesn't call you to wake up every day and focus all your attention on not sinning. Me and my D group were talking about this. And I said, well, here's the easiest way to understand it. What do you think happens when I sit on the couch and go, I'm not going to eat those Oreos. I'm not going to eat those Oreos. I'm not going to eat those Oreos. Them suckers are gone. They got no chance. All I can think about is the Oreos I'm not going to eat until I eat them. Right? What do you think happens when you wander around all day? Don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. I mean, all you're thinking about is you're worshiping sin. But what if you wake up every day and think, Oreos? Son, forget Oreos. I've done found something way better than Oreos. Oreos don't even taste good anymore now that I've tasted of this. And instead of walking around going, don't sin, don't sin, you're walking around going, Jesus, aren't you amazing? And you're always faithful. And everything I read in your word is true and intended for me and edifying to my soul. That's deliverance. That's what John wants us to see. You know, it's, it's not that whatever... It's not that whatever people think makes them happy is bad. That's not what it is. See, you know what? This is what's so great about being saved. I get to be saved, and Jesus is so amazing, and I still get to eat Oreos. Praise the Lord. See how great that is? Son, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have an Oreo factory. So here's the deal. It's not that whatever makes you happy is bad, but it's that God shows us through Jesus what really can truly make us happy. So when, when John's gospel comes along and says, in him is Zoe, life. John doesn't, John doesn't say that by him is life or through him is life. He says, in Him is life. The only way to experience this life is in Him. When I think about my old life, I don't think to myself, wow. Think of all the freedom I had. Think of all the fun I had. Think of all the great experiences I had. No. And I laughed many times and experienced many things. I mean, I lived 25 years of my life apart from the knowledge of God. And when I now think back on my time away from God, separated from God, blinded to the reality of who God is, it just breaks my heart. Because it makes me think, wow, if I'd have only known then what I know now. If I'd only known then who I know now. So you see, 
It's in Him. In other words, the life that Jesus brings in both quantity and quality does not exist apart from relationship with Him. It doesn't exist. The only way it can be had is in relationship with Him. The crazy thing about this is, is that I know people that I think are in relationship with Him and don't experience Zoe life. So when Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the verse we read earlier, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But then notice what He says. I, I have come that they may have life and life more abundantly. You see, the I in that verse, it's emphatic. It means that the life that the, the, the gospel of John wants us to be introduced to can only come one way. It can only come through Him. Now, I have one more thing, a point I want you to consider this morning before our invitation. I'm sure there are some of you in this room and in your heart, you're resistant to some of the things I've talked about this morning. Because you've been acclimated to a system of belief whereby the focus of your life for so long has been on not sinning. And so everything I've said has kind of ruffled your feathers a little bit. I want to ask you a question. How come the Gospel of John doesn't start by saying Jesus came in the flesh and dwelt among us because people had been committing this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin and all these sins have this consequence and this consequence and this consequence and this consequence. In other words, if God in all of His sovereign, perfect providence was introducing us to His Son, the Lord Jesus, if the purpose was so that you wouldn't sin, don't you think that the first thing you'd read in the Gospels is, here's all the things that people have been doing, here's all the things you don't need to do, and if you do them, here's all the things that are going to happen, but you don't read that. You open the Bible and start reading about the coming of Christ, and guess what you see? You see the gospel writers elevating the person of Christ. They're saying, listen, if you want freedom, if you want to experience big G grace, what you need to do is see Jesus for who He is. You need to see Jesus as the Lord, Jesus as the Savior, Jesus as the one who can do for you what nothing else can do for you. Jesus who has given everything on your behalf, that if you can see Jesus clearly, you will then be delivered and set free and will experience life. There's no list of sins not to commit in there. Where are they? No, no, little G grace has been replaced. And now we live and bask in a grace that shouts at us. No, he wants you to know. He doesn't have to point out for you what all the cheap substitutes for satisfaction are. It would just be a waste of space. Here's what he does. He points out for me and you who Jesus is. 
Because if we get that, we have everything. Let's stand and bow our heads.